Welcome to the Iconic Brands Podcast, where we cover the best e-commerce brands, their story, the playbook that made them successful, and their founders. For each company, we'll discuss the history of the brand and their growth playbook, and we also occasionally do interviews with a founding member. We are here to help you navigate the changing world of e-commerce and to help you build the next iconic brand. So now I have the pleasure of introducing the people with whom I'll be speaking today. So first, we have Ben, which I'll just let him introduce himself. First, thanks for having me, Phil. Ben, aspiring Ben Thompson. But <laughs> yeah, so mostly the, game's, the name is coming just from the fact that I'm a finance guy, no background in investing, but I love, you know, diving deep into those business models and cracking, you know, those unique economics. So that's what I want to do in that podcast and, you know, just trying to understand the nitty gritty details. And I'm excited for that. So what about you, PL? Awesome. So my name is PL or Pierre Luc. And I'm really passionate about a variety of different techs, business history, but also go-to-market strategy, where I think that today's episode will be diving into the nitty-gritty details of the specific company. And I'm really excited to dive into that. So I'll pass it to, to Joe. Yeah, uh, Joe, I am a tech entrepreneur in the consumer space. Uh, before that was a VC um, at a fund that invested actually quite a lot uh, in everything consumer, uh, so invested um, pretty much in every continent uh, for a few years and now an operator uh, over the last two years. Uh, I'm super excited to do this pod, uh, not only to learn about companies, uh, but also to synthesize thoughts, uh, think about ways to apply them to my own entrepreneurial journey and obviously spend time with both of you guys. Uh, I'm sure we're going to agree on a lot of things, disagree on a lot of things. Uh, but one thing for sure is that we're going to learn together as we do that. Uh, so I'm excited about it. I think today's company is one where there's room for disagreement, um, definitely ups and downs, but I'll let you PL kind of ensure that and then we can, we can get started. It's going to be an exciting episode for sure. Yeah. Exactly. With the up and downs, it's just going to make it much more fun. I think, say, I think our best wishes is just that it's useful for everybody, not, not only us, but you know, for aspiring founders or people that want to go into that consumer space, I think we're going to be providing a lot of information and hopefully that's useful for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. A quick note to thank our sponsor, Bloom, for making this show possible. Bloom is building a social commerce app that allows leading creators to design any products they want using a proprietary Gen AI powered tool. Designs that get the most traction on the app are sent to Prod in a highly vetted network of more than a thousand manufacturers working with brands like Nike, LVMH, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren. Bloom believes that creators, influencers, and artists should not merely be passive endorsers of other companies' products, but instead active collaborators in the product development process. Social commerce has lost its authenticity, and Bloom's mission is to bring it back by allowing creators to make real money along the way. Bloom is a venture capital-backed business supported by some of the world's best investors, having backed companies like Facebook, Etsy, Slack, and Dropbox. If you're a creator and have ideas of unique products you want to bring to life, reach out to the Bloom team on their Instagram page at letsbloom underscore art and help them build a future where tomorrow's largest brands are built by creators, not corporations. So we're going to be talking about a famous D2C company that is focused on the beauty industry, which went through many phases, just like the beauty industry over the last coming years. And... You guessed it. It is, drumroll please, <laughs> Glossier. All right. Uh, cool. So 
Glossier is a super known company. Uh, lots of brand awareness, especially here in North America, although they do have kind of operations globally. Uh, just to put things in perspective around the scale of this business and why we decided to talk about it for our first episode, um, it's a huge company, right? It's valued at nearly $2 billion. Uh, it raised $266 million. Uh, it has, you know, more than or had more than 400 employees, but then it scaled down a little bit after, you know, some... Um, you know, layoffs that they did after their last round. The company is expecting to make about 275 million of revenues over uh, 2023, uh, which is not a small number. So quite a big business, huge scale, presents in multiple countries, um, lots of learnings to make from their journey as well. Um, they've gone through many phases, as you've said, not only them as a business, but also the industry in which they operated. First, the beauty industry changed a lot over the last you know decade, but also the consumer-facing, direct-to-consumer industry went from basically VC darting at one point to a very challenging space and glossy experience you know out of that. Uh, so we're going to be learning about their own journey, but also you know take a, a meta lens looking at the entire space as a whole and trying to. Uh, build up learning coming from them specifically and, and, and the industry. Um, I'm excited uh, about this chat about Glossier because of the historical aspect it brings. Uh, talking about it first, as we kind of dive into a lot of consumer-facing brand, is going to set the foundation and the groundwork for a lot of teams that are going to be coming back in the next episodes. How do you build community? How do you fundraise? How do you set yourself apart as a brand? How do you compete against big incumbents, which they had to do? So there's a lot of aspects in that specific playbook that are uh, extremely leverageable for other founders interesting of better understanding how to build a brand, how to scale a brand, how to uh, basically jump through the hoops that you need to jump through as you kind of build build all, uh, all that up. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much kind of the one-on-one of what they do. And now... Uh, we can dive into the story of it, you know, really diving into Glossier. Uh, we need to go all the way back. So, Ben, perhaps you can uh, take us through 1997. Yeah, so all the biggest ideas and the biggest companies start with, you know, one entrepreneur, one special individual that, you know, dreams it big and actually executes it. And Glossier Stories is actually Emily Weiss. So, in 1997, she was only... 12 years old when she started to dream about working in that fashion industry and she actually wrote a letter to the editor-in-chief at Vogue and she actually said one day I'm gonna be taking your job I'm gonna be the editor-in-chief so from that moment on she knew she wanted to work in fashion and she was gonna work for it that's very impressive because I feel like at 12 years old not many people actually know what they want to do you know yeah and and you know regarding that specific letter uh Still kind of unclear to me what exactly was in it, but just having the guts of like writing to that person For sure. uh, is, is kind of a testimony of her own kind of personality. And also the fact that it was published. I mean, she had, she had the, the, you know, at that point in time, I think she said she was extremely excited when she saw, she saw it published. So uh, definitely unfolded a few things uh, in our later on career. Yeah. So continuing it, continuing the journey around, Uh, during high school, actually, Emily started ba babysitting at one of her neighbors, and he happened to work at Ralph Lauren. So she kind of traded that job for an internship. So at actually, 15, not at, even legal. Yeah, at 15. <laughs> so at 15, she she was babysitting, and she actually asked him, "Hey, can I can I work in the fashion industry as well?" 
and she he loved the grit and she actually started to do an internship there and she ended up doing two summers actually at Ralph Lauren just helping with the PR department and trying to you know do any task that would be required for a 15 years old so actually just trying to help as, as much as she could but then uh, story continues she decided to go to NYU study there a studio art so basically everything around you know design art there's definitely like a continuity in her story yeah. right yeah um listening her talk about uh you know our own journey i think the thing she says has been kind of the common denominator uh, denominator is her love for telling stories obviously the letter she sent to vogue um but we're gonna see later on storyline and story building uh, story making is really one of her superpowers She's been able to tell a story when she fundraised, you know, tell a story to her community when she launched the brand, tell a story to amazing people in her company for hiring them. Um, so there's definitely kind of that continuity capacity to build kind of a cohesive, long storyline that you already see at this point in time. She's like 20, 22 at this point in time. And still there's like this very strong, cohesive kind of alignment of action, things that she studied Um that's uh, obvious when we look at the story in retrospect. Absolutely. I think the second point actually that stands out even at this at, at, at her age is actually her work ethic. So after her first internship at, Fla- at Ralph Lauren, she ended up having another internship at Teen Vogue's, which was actually a recommendation by her boss at Ralph Lauren. So he loved so much her work ethic. So he referred, referred her to another, another, another job you know, at Teen Vogue's. So she was actually working there uh, under the editor-in-chief and she started working in the fashion department, doing the photo shoot and other tasks related to that. So that was her first internship during college. And then she continued her journey at W Magazine, where she kind of did something different. So she was working with the accessories department and she gained more experience in that industry. So still in fashion, but working you know, in different fields in order to really understand how it works and trying to, to set up her, her career for after graduation. Yeah. Basically, uh, we have a founder that worked in the content creation and fashion industry from 12 years old, <laughs> as she wrote that first letter to Vogue, all the way to like 22 years old. So as most of us don't have any idea of what we want to do at like 25, she already had like 10 years of experience in that. Uh, or at least, you know, she knew, you know, inside that this is what she wanted to build. Uh, things to, to keep in mind because she her career progressed really fast from that point. But perhaps, Pale, you can tell us a little bit more about her journey after W Magazine and I think the beginning of the really exciting part for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. So after she graduated from NYU, she actually worked at Vogue as a fashion assistant, which is cool because at this point in time, she's working in fashion. So just wanted to take note that for the rest of the podcast. And from here, this is where she continued as like a photo editing and photographer in this job where she ended up actually being promoted after some time to the on-set styling assistant at Vogue Photoshoots, where during this point, this is where it gets the most exciting, where this is where she starts on September 1st, 2010, she started writing Into the Gloss, which is her most, basically her biggest blog, which is where the company Gloss... Well, her, her only blog, right? Exactly. Her only blog, which basically starts... Uh, the, the company, her first post was actually by Nick Axelrod, which is one of her friends who was actually a writer, a beauty writer at L at the time. And it was really cool because the first blog post included not only a picture of Nick's products, but also a discussion of 
how Nick actually uses his products and stuff like that. So it's just a lot more of an authentic perspective on beauty, which I think is definitely one of the biggest differentiators as to why that blog went off to become a success. And I think the second thing that made it successful is the fact that she had access, right? So she (laughs) was working as a non-style assistant, so she had access to those celebrities and those people actually with big communities, so she could take them for a five-minute interview and Absolutely. really get the perspective and having that in to get some content for the, for the blog, which was actually just the perfect marketing strategy without cost, right? Yeah, she had like the three kind of key recipes going into it, which I think you guys alluded like to all of them, which was the first one, uh, which PL said, uh, authenticity. Uh, you know, she was kind of providing this authentic behind the scene feel of people sharing about their appreciation of products, you know, what's their routine like, uh, almost sharing their own experiences using stuff versus, you know, something that was more catering, catered around selling things. It was just like a place where people could share their perspective and opinion on product. Uh, so really that authentic, non-commercially, uh, like uh, salesy, salesy, yeah, salesy yeah. tone. The second point, which Ben, you obviously talked about, is she had access. Uh, I think she did well, even with our post that didn't include the largest celebrities. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this was an accelerant. You know, when you can have big names that, uh, you know, talk with you, you obviously get a, a way bigger kind of uh, tribune looking at, at what you do. So this was great. Uh, and then the last piece is that she's an amazing writer and she, she worked really hard, um, you know, PL, you can kind of talk about her work ethic on that. But she worked really hard and she created great content. Not only did she have access, she had the talent to leverage that. Yeah, absolutely. And just to touch upon, like you just mentioned, her work ethic, I thought while reading this, I was absolutely amazed, was that she would get up every morning at 4 a.m. to work on her blog and was also spending weekends pushing it and making it like a whole lot better which ended up being very, very successful as it had more than a million unique visitors per month and 10 million page views, which is incredible, really. I I assume you know that at that point where you have that many, many viewers and that many followers that love your content, you need to do something about it, right? There's just no sense of, you know, just doing it as a side hustle. So actually, I think that's, that's what, that's what she's doing. Exactly. This is exactly what she said. You know, from that point on, uh, she started to have all that traffic, all those people coming. And and this is when she had that idea of, you know, people can ask themselves a few things. Uh, And there's actually quite a few different business models that you can launch from that point. If you have a blog and you have great viewership, there's a few ways to monetize that. The first one, the most common one, uh, is to do ads and make some money with ads. From my understanding, she did that. So there was some ads and she made some money with ads with the blog. Uh, you can really push that or you could, you can keep that you know, non-invasive to a minimum. It's re- it really depends on how far you want to go. Uh, you know, running ads can become an entire business on, on your content platform. I mean, the, uh, <laughs> the whole press industry is kind of all about that. So it's, it's, a, huge, it's a huge sector on its own if this is what you want to do. She obviously, you know, asked herself that question. The second piece is if you create great content, it's hard, but you can create a subscription around it. This is what your lifelong hero, Ben Thompson, is doing, <laughs> Ben. Uh, a pioneer in that model. Uh, you know, an interesting point I was listening you know, to him. He said um, when Substack launched... Uh, and they were actually fundraising for their seed. They mo- their motto, their brand tagline was 
Ben Thompson in a box. You know, the Ben Thompson podcast in a box. Like, this is how much of a pioneer he was around this whole kind of subscription model with content. Uh, but this would have been an option for her, you know, back in the days. But instead, the idea that she had was to launch her own brand, which is the highest payoff bet, but also the riskiest one. Uh, but she went for it. Uh, again, I'm not surprised, you know, knowing what we now know about her own kind of a bringing and story, this all fits within, you know, the persona that we've kind of crafted around her. So she decided to go on and launch her own fashion brand, which would later on uh, become the Glossier that we know. The first person she needed to hire to make that happen was a chemist because she wanted to create a beauty brand, mostly sold online, but she had no experience building beauty product and she had no experience building tech. Uh, so, so she needed to kind of surround herself with, with the right people. First thing that she did was searching for that chemist or person that could help her on the productization side of things. And she was, I don't want to say very lucky, but she landed on the right person. Uh, let's put it this way. She actually has a very story, a story when she actually, uh, you know, tell people about who that person was. She was actually looking for that chemist and heard from a recommendation that some guy uh, living pretty much out of the middle of nowhere was one of the best makeup chemists ever. Uh, she, she didn't, you know, she wanted to believe it, but she had to see it with her own eyes at first. And so she drove all the way to that person's house, arrived in the parking lot and thought to herself, well, what's this area? There's no way that this person is going to be the good one for us. You know, it seemed a little bit sketchy. She knocked on the door who opens a six foot four tall guy who happens to be absolutely passionate about women's skincare. <laughs> and so uh, he became the chemist, you know, one of the first employees of Glossy, if not the first one. Uh, and it ended up becoming an amazing hire, uh, just a genius, apparently. And, uh, you know, the point I would like to make with that is as you create a business, regardless of the space, if it's you're building a brand, if you're building a B2B SaaS company, if you're building an AI company, if you're building any type of business, your first one, five, ten hires are, is what is going to make or break the company. You need amazing hires uh, in the first place. And she obviously started things really well uh, with that. Now she has the chemist. What does she need? She needs money. Uh, she needs money to kickstart that business. And so how much how much does she need, it, guys? Do you know? No clue. I think the company again for big guys, you need maybe a few hundred thousand, maybe a few million. I don't know. But I feel like it's so tough as a first time founder without any previous experience to know like a good amount to, to set, right? And there's not that many peers, right, that you can yeah. anchor yourself on. But she knew. She knew. She knew she needed to raise one million, which when you ask her, you know, how did you come to that match? She said, absolutely <laughs> no it's a round number. number this is what i need and so she went on to fundraise something she had never done in the past so no beauty product building experience no tech experience and no vc fundraising experience but she has the grit experience that she needed to go through all of those challenges and so she went on to fundraise one very big challenge that she faced was that you know a problem that's still very much alive today uh but there was basically no women vcs Uh, and when you sell a beauty product, if those VCs can't try the product, if these VCs have never read, you know, your blog posts, um, 
becomes very hard for them to understand how differentiated you are uh, as an entrepreneur and, you know, as a business. And so she tried to fundraise. It was very, very hard. Uh, she said it was like a, uh, an extremely challenging experience. Obviously, getting rejections after rejections is, is definitely not something easy to do. Um, she said less, at, at back in the days, less than 5% of VCs uh, were women. And, you know, interesting fact, even if we bring things all the way up to today, there remains a huge challenge in representation of women in VCs, especially at the kind of partnership level, higher up level. I think a few reasons for that. Obviously, when you are a partner, uh, it means that you've been in the space for a while. So there's kind of a, you know, partnership, uh, women representation is kind of a lagging indicator because the quantity of partners you'll have today is a representation of how many women VCs were there over the last kind of five years of your own. So that's a lagging indicator, but you still have a huge representation problem when it comes uh, to the VC and overall kind of the private market kind of uh, capital allocation industry. Um, one thing that's interesting, though, is from my own personal experience, the category uh, that saw the largest rise uh, in women VCs is actually the consumer tech space. Um, perhaps I might be wrong. I don't have overarching kind of macro data. But this is a space that has been improving way faster than other industries from my kind of own experience, which I think is great uh, because, you know, everyone can kind of um, see themselves and represent themselves in consumer products. So if you don't have representation at the investor level for that category, your investment returns are just going to be worse. You need to have an investment representation that represents your kind of consumer representation. This is not a, an equality type of reflection, this is just a alpha return type of reflection, right? If you want to have differentiated returns, you need to have uh, a more macro kind of perspective and just better represented type of perspective. Uh, all this being said, she landed on what might be one of the most iconic investor in the consumer uh, space uh, and raised more than twice what she expected. So she got around led by Kirsten Green from Forerunner Ventures, uh, for people who don't know, Forerunner Ventures, you know, one of the top three uh, consumer-facing venture funds of all time. They backed War uh, Warby Parkers, they backed Daughter Shave Clubs, I'm pretty sure they backed Bonobo as well. Uh, just a very accomplished fund. And that partner specifically, uh, Kirsten, she basically back then was kind of early on in our career, but over the last decade, she just continued on her streak. She's an amazing investor. And, you know, seeing in Emily everything that Glossy could become, even before having launched a single product, is just a testimony of how forward-looking she is, you know, how she knew how to look for the right things. So they raised that $2 million round, uh, which was, you know, a great success, especially in that context. Uh, and then they moved on, they continued building, very quickly after, they raised a Series A of $8.4 million, led by Thrive Capital, which is the firm uh, of Jared Kushner, um, someone with great experience you know, in the consumer space. Uh, they've made some amazing investment as well. When you think about a consumer brand, those two funds might be yeah, some of the best ones you want on your cap table. So you basically started with this person with an idea and a blog to this person with a team, an amazing team, and amazing capital backers behind her. Amazing, you know, proof point of how fast she can learn and, and ship things. Uh, really not an easy feat. Uh, and then she then started to launch product, which is, you know, the part that's exciting. And this is when we 
dive into the strategy and the different kind of things that she did. Uh, shortly after that uh, 8.4 million Series A round, uh, she kind of hinted to 120K followers that you know some products might be coming. And she launched our first four products uh, over that year. Over that year, every single one of them of them were blockbusters. Things sold really well. Glossier was on a rocket ship. Incredible growth. People were engaged. Very strong, positive feelings around the brand all across the blog, uh, all across socials. You know, they launched their product pretty much at the same time as Instagram was kind of growing into popularity as a platform. Um, and I think if they would have launched, you know, a decade after Instagram, perhaps the blog format would have not existed and they, they would just have launched as a brand on Instagram, which is what a lot of brands are doing. But the platform just wasn't there back in the days and they had to create their own kind of platform. You know, I actually think there might have been a point where Into the Gloss was bigger than Instagram. That's, that's <laughs> kind of for sure. Uh, so it's crazy. Your blog is bigger like than what's now the primary social platform for beauty product kind of advertising. Anyhow, they launched those four products. The year after, they launched two new products. And again, Blockbuster. So they went on to raise another round, $24 million by IVP. At this point in time, I think there was like uh, an extract when she said they pitched to 12 investors and they received 12 term sheets. Uh, back in the days, Glossier was the name in town. She was the founder in town. Everything they were touching was kind of turning into gold. The D2C model was working like crazy. People were buying online. The community was engaged. One important thing, we're going to dive into it, but the competition was not that intense when it comes to getting your brand seen online. You didn't have this overflow of brands and competitive product out there that we we, we see now. And we're going to dive into that because it has a lot of implications. But really, when you think about Glossier in 2016, they are the king of the hill. Yeah, at that time, how it works is actually when you're a customer and you want to get some skincare or just some beauty products, you're just walking into a, you know, a drugstore and you get someone that actually just tried to make you a makeup or a makeover just in order to, for you to try the product and then buy it afterwards. So that's how it works. It's really to that retail presence, but now D2C is just showing that there's another way to go, to go about it and to gain a lot of scale you know, rapidly and they're actually pioneering that movement. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's really worth taking a second to talk about the D2C model specifically, but Ben Ben is absolutely right. The way all products used to be sold, especially beauty products, but all of them, was basically manufacturers are building the product. You have brands that send shoppers um, and that buy you know, those products directly from the manufacturers. Um, actually, people would be surprised, but it's not always the brands that send all the specs to manufacturers of what they want to have built. Sometimes manufacturers do huge shows when they display products and the, bl- the brands only do marginal changes to those kind of canvas. So brand differentiation sometimes is not as strong as people think, but this is where a huge part of the margin is actually captured. Anyway, you have manufacturers, then you have brands. Then what you used to have is brands uh, having their own sellers that would go from retail store or retail chain to retail chain, trying to get product placement. And then the retailers will be the one, you know, selling the product to customer. Your distribution needed to be physical. And then with the advent of the internet, social commerce uh, becoming, you know, more trusted by people, not even social commerce, just e-commerce being more trusted by people. Brands saw an opportunity to bypass retailers, which were taking, you know, a huge part of the margin 
and sell directly to customers. There's a few advantages. First, obviously, you're cutting, you know, one of the middlemen. So from a margin perspective, you do win from the margin captured, you know, via that people. If you believe that you can save on acquiring customers, if you think your CAC is going to be lower than the margin that this uh, participant in the value chain used to capture, you should do that. Second piece, which is very important, is you own the customer relationship. And that's very important. You know, if you place your product, your beauty product in a Sephora store and it gets sold, you have no idea who bought it. You can't retarget that person to talk with them. You can't ask them how they felt when they purchased it, what they like or didn't like. You can't send them your newsletter. This is not how it works. You lose so much value from being able to capture and build a long-term relationship with that person. And I really think this specific aspect of it, building a long-term relationship with a brand and the customer, is what Emily was going after with this entire kind of direct-to-consumer model. I think it goes even deeper than that. Actually, in the case of Glossier, the customers were actually dictating. Glossier. Glossier. Glossier yeah. The, the customers were actually dictating, you know, the next products and mm-hmm. actually making those decisions or being really a part, you know, of the decision making. So that was one of the big success factors for them. So it was actually people first, skincare first, makeup second, and company second in a way. One million percent. It was bottom up product development. Yeah. Listening instead of telling. Uh, they were such ahead, you know, so much ahead with that, uh, like collapsing the distance between brands and shoppers and actually co-creating with your audience the next products that are going to come to market. You're absolutely right. They took it to another level. It's not even like knowing your audience to better target them. It's actually learning from them and creating with them, co-creating with them. I think, Ben, that, that's an amazing point. I, I really agree with that. Which is so much better as well, because I think that it automatically you get right out the gate. You have like pretty much product market fit because, you know, that these are things that people actually want. And also just wanted to touch upon like the last, um, not the last, but another benefit is that I think from a business or like startup perspective as well, is that you don't have the issue of like a burn rate of having to open a whole bunch of different retail stores. Right. Where you can just have to pay for shipping and stuff like that. Yeah. And it. Yeah, if you, if you wanted to have like your own stores, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. But even if you want to distribute to, you know, large franchises and, and they have their own kind of retail stores and it's a margin issue, it's also a branding issue. I think you're right. Like, Pale, that's, that's, that's a very good point. Like, if you're an emerging brand and you try to get yourself placed into those retail locations, if they don't want your product or if they believe that the deal that you're making with them is not attractive enough. You know, they have all the leverage in the world to squeeze you and take all the margins, you know, from you. It's very hard to, pl- they only have a limited shelf space uh, and there's bigger guys in the industry taking that shelf space. And so for you to get that room, uh, you know, in front of people's eyes, you often have to let go a lot of the economics. It, it's always been like that. I think it's going to remain like that for a while, but if, you know, content is great, but distribution is really gold. Uh, if you own the distribution, you know, it says that first time founders think about products, second time founders think about distribution. Uh, owning the distribution and controlling the distribution is very important. And, you know, what the D2C model enables is for smaller guys to reach people's eyes if they do something unique enough or at least, you know, market it in a unique enough way. Uh which you know, those two things were not necessarily true uh, when the traditional retailer-facing model was kind of front and forward. I think that's an amazing point. 
And I think it, I think it goes both ways, right? The, the the new emerging consumer company, they actually want to get as much verticalized as possible to control a lot of that distribution, but also control a lot of the manufacturing to make sure that the big you know competitors are not squeezing them in terms of production, and they can ensure that they have you know the capacity to delivers on deliver on customer expectations and have that capacity you know all the way through. So that's one thing, but you need to have money for that. And I actually think that's a great point, Ben. There's actually a real sequencing in how you want to actually build these businesses and the problems you want to solve at each part of your journey. The first thing you want to do as a brand is make sure you have product market fit. Do you Are you building something that people care about, that people want? You do that by going to market with a product. You know, the co-creation aspect of it, which you alluded to, PL, is amazing because you have a very strong guarantee that what you do is going to be liked at least by a small number of people. This is the first step. Am I building something that people care about? Second step that you want to, that you want to make is, is there a big enough market that cares about that? Big enough market doesn't necessarily mean is there 10 million people that likes it. It can be a way smaller pool of buyers if they really like what you do. But what counts is the total dollar numbers that you can sell. You want to have a hint around that. And so first, you validate product market fit. Second, you validate that there's a way for you to address like a big time by trying to sell to a few new channels, understanding the buying patterns of your of your shoppers. And then the last thing you want to do after that is kind of optimizing the entire supply chain and the unit economics around them, especially on the cost structure front. You have little control around scale when you're so early on uh, because you won't have huge volumes, right? So you can't really solve that on the first day of your business. Neither should you. Then when it comes to distribution, it becomes very hard for you to have a strong distribution and negotiate strong distribution partnership unless you have a product that at least a few people care about. But the brand aspect of it, the product aspect of it can really start from moment number one. And so as we talked and, and we create this podcast for you know aspiring consumer brand founders, this sequencing is perhaps not talked about enough, but I think it's very important as you kind of think through strategically about how to build these brands. Um, so this was, I think, Ben, like a very great point that you shared and, and, and one of the you know playbook aspects that she definitely followed. A quick note to thank our sponsor, Bloom, for making this show possible. Bloom is building a social commerce app that allows leading creators to design any products they want using a proprietary Gen AI powered tool. Designs that get the most traction on the app are sent to Prod in a highly vetted network of more than a thousand manufacturers working with brands like Nike, LVMH, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren. Bloom believes that creators, influencers, and artists should not merely be passive endorsers of other companies' products, but instead active collaborators in the product development process. Social commerce has lost its authenticity, and Bloom's mission is to bring it back by allowing creators to make real money along the way. Bloom is a venture capital-backed business supported by some of the world's best investors, having backed companies like Facebook, Etsy, Slack, and Dropbox. If you are a creator and have ideas of unique products you want to bring to life, reach out to the Bloom team on their Instagram page at letsbloom underscore art and help them build a future where tomorrow's largest brands are built by creators, not corporations. Going back to the storyline, now a little bit because we're kind of diverging apart. Um... Everything is going well. They're on top of the world. They raised that 24 million round that everyone wanted to invest in. Things are going well. And now what do they do? They've touched with product expansion. Now they're really tapping into geographic expansion. And so they have an amazing superpower to decide where they expand. And it remains that blog. That blog is really like a cornerstone of their strategy. 
But basically, from looking at where the viewership and readership is coming from, where it's growing the most, they can decide where they're going to ship next. One thing to keep in perspective is that we're back in 2016 when all of that happened, and they didn't have the third-party logistics provider that we do. Shipping internationally was actually way more complex than it is now. Uh, so they had to build that infrastructure you know, a lot more from the ground up than brands needs to do today. There's been a unbundling of the brand and the creator economy that has happened over the last, I would say, five we could say five to 10 years, but realistically, in my perspective, really over the last five years where as a brand today, you can outsource your marketing, you can, to influencers, you can outsource your manufacturing, uh, and then get it. you can outsource your logistics, you can outsource your ad management, you can even outsource your design process. As a brand, you can really be an orchestrator of a few third parties and, and launch things. Uh, and then it becomes a maths question, you know, what's your unit economics? Uh, so there's all of this that's possible now that wasn't possible back in the day. So the point we're trying to make is deciding which market to open back then was a big decision because cost and uh, operational challenges were kind of really involved into that. They expanded into Canada, they expanded into the UK, and shortly after they expanded into France as well. Things were still going very well for Glossier, product expansion, geographic expansion, things were working really well. And so in 2018, they raised a 52 million round from led by Index, which is, again, very uh, respectable fun, you know, one of the best fun on the consumer side. They've done some great things. Interestingly enough, Glossier's president, CFO and CEO, so, you know, quite a big title, <laughs> you know, we could we could very safely assume that this person was very busy. Uh, Henry Davis came uh, from uh, from Index, so he used to be an investor there, and then he, he joined Glossier. I think he joined before that round, um, and he had a very important role within that company. He worked very closely, obviously, with the founder. I think he's considered as a co-founder of the company, really helping it scale to the to the degree it did. Um, but this is when he joined. So again, the company is getting more sophisticated. It's growing. Uh, it taps into incredible talent pools uh, to keep on growing. Uh, and then you know, the company keeps on growing again. Unicorn status achieved within five years with a $100 million round led by Sequoia, you know, praised VC firm. Many consider it to be the most successful firm of all time. Uh, they've backed companies that today collectively represent 20% of the NASDAQ. Uh, praised fund. They basically kickstarted the VC model uh, in Silicon Valley back in the 70s. Uh, very interesting story as a fund. Um, so yeah, a very, very cool fund. A great fund to have around the table in 2019. They did the last round in 2021, but at this point in time, things were starting to get a little bit more challenging uh, for Glossier as a brand. So they did raise an $80 million round uh, from Pine, which is a great, great crossover edge fund uh, led by uh, an ex-managing director from Tiger, another praised edge fund. Interesting point, in my perspective, to uh, welcome and board a crossover investor fund, just for people's context. Uh, this theoretically could have been one of Glossier's last private round. Uh, and having a fund that invests in both private market but also public market is great for two reasons. First of all, 
you have someone that comes on your board that understand how public market investors think. And so they can help you get ready, you know, get, get your house in order uh, before showing your financial statements to the public. And they can provide you with that great level of uh, comprehension of what equity investors really care about when they look at financials. And, you know, this might seem like one-on-one stuff, but I'm not sure if you recall, but when we work, share their S1, it's called an S1 filing, uh, publicly, this was the beginning of the end. I mean, the beginning of the end started in a uh, non-public fashion a little bit before that. But when that S1 came out, it was, uh, you know, really like a public disaster. Uh, and so you, you never want that to happen. So having that you know, sophistication uh, is great on your board, uh, especially, you know, pre-IPO. And another point that's interesting is obviously once you're public and you're going public, you want your stock to be supported. Uh, having those deep pockets of people capable of investing in public equities is also great, you know, to support support price if if that's the intent of, of those funds. So great backer to have coming at this point in time, very experienced consumer centric investor. Uh, so yeah, great, great, great things. But in 2021, things were not the same as they were in 2019. And I'll pass it off to UPL to tell our listeners about um, the not sunny, so sunny days uh, of Glossier. Yeah. The ups and downs, which all companies face. Exactly. And in Glossier's role, and Glossier's perspective is also very unique because in 2019, they launched Glossier Play, which was a line of completely different colors cosmetics to what they previously launched. And this was very different for their strategy because... They before then they were really talking with their customers, talking to see like if these were things that people actually wanted. And this was a completely new and different strategy, which did not really end up happening all too successfully. It was kind of a brand carve out, like exactly. a, a new brand in itself. Um, it, it was like different, you know, heavy packaging, not biodegradable mm-hmm. kind of color palette. Yeah, there was different like different colors, glitters, and like you said, packaging, which was completely different and not really resonating with their customer base. So at that po- at that at that point, I think they had a plan for every couple of years to release a new type of brand, a bit of a carve out in order to, you know, expand the, that reach into new customers, maybe into different branches in terms of product diversification. But not sure if it was working. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a that's a very interesting point. So there. Their whole, I, I can understand kind of the strategy behind it. Their whole point was we got this huge pool of people. We know how to talk with them. Uh, we know they care about uh, beauty and fashion and we want to expand that by right? Uh, and so what they're thinking is we can keep on selling with Glossier, which we are obviously continue to do, but we can spin up new brands that will allow us to expand the um, surface area of product that we cover without undermining the core Glossier brand. Um, many of these brands, when you think about direct-to-consumer brands, and you know when you were back to 2019, 2019, they've cut themselves trapped into a core team in D2C, which is the single product D2C company. Allbirds is a great example of that with one pair of shoes. Uh, Bonobos with their pants are an example of that with obviously the pants, although they were doing, you know, more than that on on the kind of menswear clothing line. You've had a few products and companies, D2C companies like that, who successfully grew due to a killer product, 
but that got trapped into that success with one product only and could it expand, you know, horizontally with new product lines, uh, which is something that D2C companies today are a lot more aware of than they were a few years back, avoiding getting trapped into that monolithic product offering uh, is actually something that you need to plan on early on. And perhaps Glossier was, they didn't have a single product. They have multiple products, but they, they did have very few products back then. Uh, and they had a great brand continuity around those products. But the logic of wanting to expand your offering surface area without uh, impacting too much the core brand, so spinning up as an independent brand, I, I can definitely see the rationale around it. I can see how you can come up with a decision like that from like a strategic standpoint. Then in the way it was kind of communicated, applied, obviously the market reacted in a negative like, fashion. Is yeah. that right? Like, yeah, I think the, li the line was discontinued. Yeah, exactly. I ended up getting discontinued in 2021, but was announced via email in 2020. So not even like a, a year and a half later. After they launched, to discontinue that. Well, fell fast. I think yeah. fell fast is what you need to do. Unfortunately, I don't think it's the last problem that they face around those years, no? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> like, for example, in June 2020, there was actually a like large criticism of Glossier due to their racial inequality within the company. And this was like a group of former retail employees who actually all got together and made a group that was called Out of the Gloss, which in June 2020, remember... Or in the pandemic, they, they get together on Instagram to make a huge deal about it because because it is really important. It's a very sensible topic Absolutely. at this time with George Floyd, and like this is this is, I mean, this is obviously not something you want to be exposed to. Mm -hmm. But this was a very sensible topic specifically at this point in time. Exactly, especially that it consisted of such important things like racial discrimination, unsafe working conditions, and like a lot of lack of leader, leadership diversity. Especially, like you said, this time it's not at all a, an ideal scenario, right? And well, at least what was good about it is that Waze I did acknowledge their the former employees' experiences and committed to making several changes within the company. But the problem is that when you're a company so centered around changing the standard of the industry, yeah. you know, being better and you know promoting those great values that support women and diversity, if you do. If you get those allegations, that does leave a stain, you know, on your, on your brand. And even though you apologize, some customers, you, you might lose them anyway. So that's that's another big bump on the road that they face. I agree so much. And I think it expands beyond customers. I think it's also um, your employees, uh, you know, and how seen and motivated people actually feel inside the company. This is really not to kind of overstate. Let's not forget that this complaint uh you know, mainly came from ex-employees uh, around around those conditions. Um, we're going to talk about it in the playbook section at the end a little bit, uh, but brand and branding is obviously a huge moat and competitive advantage for a company. It's, in my opinion, the most powerful of moats in that some of the most legendary companies like LVMH proved the point that when you have a generational brand, uh, on your hands, you can generate differentiated cash flows for decades, if not centuries. Uh, brand, just like wine, if taken care of properly, appreciates over time. 
Uh, I love that metaphor, by the way. <laughs> if you and I know nothing, literally zero about wine. <laughs> <laughs> But um, when you think about a new brand trying to launch it today, to get a legendary status like a Louis Vuitton, like an Hermes, you need to build a history. And and you know, if there's there's a lot of things you can bootstrap and accelerate. But history, you know, time, time works at its own speed on on, on planet Earth, at least. Um, and so you can't fast track that. You can't. You can't. You can't fast track building a legacy. Um, and so the point uh, I was kind of getting at is, once you have brand, you can have a real differentiation for a very long time. And another thing that brands provide is a very quick rise to the top. When you think about Glossier, they resonated with people. People cared about them and they grew so fast. You know, back in 2015, 2016, when you recall when they were raising these rounds back to back, 2018, they had this brand power that was basically driving their sales, driving them to the top, driving people to their blog. Brand came from trust, as we were kind of discussing a little bit earlier. Um, but brand can kill you in a second. You know, if your business is centered on brand, once your brand is affected by something as meaningful as, you know, racial equality, the way you treat employees, you know, over a day, over a day, a billion dollar business can disappear. And we've seen that example uh, in other companies. If you destroy the brand of a company that's so brand centric, There's really nothing you can do. And to be clear, even if you're a company that doesn't use brand as, as its biggest kind of differentiator, if your brand is meaningfully impacted by anything happening, it's going to be very hard to kind of come back from it. But when brand is what sets you apart, the impact is like right away immediate. Uh, and so they had to like build back this trust with their user very fast because otherwise... Um, You know, what is Glossier without a brand? You know, it's a dozen of products uh, that are getting increasingly commoditized because there's a lot of other fashion brands coming up, a lot of people spinning up content. So this was a huge major crisis. Yeah, and especially in 2020 is that there's a whole bunch of people that are coming on to the D2C market due to the pandemic. So kind of like you said, it's getting completely flooded and that this happens at the, wrong, at the, at the worst time. Very true, man. 2020, you had to sell online because stores were closed. Uh, so this was this was a crazy time uh, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, perhaps we, we kind of covered that whole topic and the fact that she uh, obviously acknowledged it. You know, it's, it's obviously good to acknowledge uh, and to improve. And I take it as consequences. So m even after they raised their big rounds, they had to lay off a lot of people. So perhaps you can say a bit more about that. Yeah. So after raising their, their 80 million round in 2022, they actually had to fire 80 employees, which considered a full third of its staff, which is huge when you think of this size of a round and this size of a layoff, which is even bigger when you think about than a lot of the tech companies that have um, in terms of percentage that have happened in the recent in the past months and what was the cause of those layoffs was really the fact that they were focusing a bit too much on brand expansions like play instead of focusing on acquiring new customers and being really like they did before making those customers happy getting those like that feedback from their customers etc and this kind of led to way stepping down as a ceo in May 2022. So, and then the new person that came in was Cal Leahy. Yeah, 
And Cowley really came in to steer the ship in the right direction, right? Yeah, so that's like that's step number three, right? You had brand creation, community-driven brand creation. So you have Into the Glass coming up, you know, this was a brand. Then you have the gold rush. Everything was going well on the streak for four years. 80% of sale, all organic, non-paid, uh, you know, more than doubling every year, like Glossier reaching more than 100 million of sales. And then Ben, you know, walk us through this, you know, third phase, which is basically the phase in which we are for Glossier after all these challenges uh, that they've kind of experienced over 20, 2020, 2021, 2019. Yeah. Perhaps you could call this third phase the restructuration because not only they're, they're changing, the restructuring, <laughs> right? They're not only they're changing the management thing, but also the, comp like, they're doing a complete 180 of the strategy, right? Yeah. So, Cal, she just joins in in May 2022. And basically, before she had spent some time at the company as the CCO, so Chief Commercial Officer, uh, in order to learn more about the, the, you know, the, the roots of the company and how it was operating. But before, she was actually coming from a position of strength from a, another brand called Colhan, which is actually another brand doing some some sh like shipping some shoes right shoes shoes bought by swoosh yeah by nike. yeah <laughs> yeah by nike so actually big successful career and she was actually bringing that expertise you know bring the ship together and scale the company once again so after you know having raised more than 250 million dollars by investors they have big expectations as well right you raise a lot of money you need to deliver on it in order to make those returns so she had she had to do that and quick so she actually established a strategy that's a lot different what, from what Glossier was doing before, and it consists, you know, of different pillars. The first one was actually, you know, doubling down on having more distribution channels. So remember, Glossier is actually a D2C-focused company, so she's actually primarily focusing on selling online because she don't want those, she doesn't want those middlemen. But now the game has changed. The game has changed. You're absolutely right, man. Uh like there were many D2C, some pop-up store here and there, but you're right. Like it's extremely online in a market that's getting like crowded. Uh, we're going to talk about customer acquisition costs and, and paid ads a lot more, but yeah, fully agreed uh, with that. Uh, it's getting, it's getting hard and she's taking the ship at a point in time where uh, the fully digital go-to-market is becoming challenged in many, many ways. We've seen other businesses struggle a lot, especially during covid uh, you know, native D2C companies struggle a lot with unit economics. So she's coming in that context. Yeah. So Lee, what she decides to do is just to open up those wholesale, you know, type of partnerships. And the big one she unlocks right after she joins is actually a partnership with Sephora, which has, you know, more than 600 type of direct, you know, point of sales in the different markets, especially in North America, where Glossy is also present. So it actually unlocks the fact that even though the branding of Glossier is really well known across the U.S., I think it's about, you know, half of the women between 18 and 34 that knows about Glossiers, yeah. but they're not, you know, capitalizing on that because they don't have that distribution, that presence that we talked about earlier. So having that partnership with Sephora is actually the way to unlock it for, for Leahy. Yeah, yeah, it's huge, 100%. I mean, selling online is great but we were talking about that sequencing recall earlier when you're a brand the strategy that worked for you in the early days doesn't mean it's, it's going to work in in the later days and doesn't mean it needs to remain the same you need to adapt to your stage to your market when you're a company making you know 200 millions of revenues a year you need scale you need size you know <laughs> is your size size right uh and 
you know, having a retail footprint is actually going to move the needle quite significantly for them. Um, you know, I was talking earlier today, actually, with like a real veteran in the fashion industry, uh, you know, chief growth officer for one of the largest kind of uh, luxury fashion marketplace. And he was telling to me that 80% of sales, even for luxury fashion, still happen offline. And when you're glossier, you're not saying selling to these people. So 80% of the people won't even have a chance to buy your product. Uh, and they felt, you know, the constraints of that quite meaningfully at that point in time. And the fact that Kyle came in and right away kind of turned the boat with this, um, to me, is a great sign of leadership and just listening to not what your customers necessarily, but at least what the market is saying from like a strategy standpoint. Yeah, definitely. I feel like as a company that you're going in as CEO and you know that there's 80% of an entire market that you're just leaving on the table, that's just something you can't do. So the fact that she did such a bold choice, which don't get me wrong, must have been very difficult, but definitely needed for, for Glossy. Yeah, and I think the playbook has worked before. You saw it with Everlane that did that partnership with Nordstrom. And even with Aries, that Aries, as maybe some of you know, uh, was completely changing the game for razors and selling directly online. That actually landed a partnership with Target. So actually, those brands need to evolve as well. They all did it, man. Casper, Bonobos, Warby Parkers, they all, you know, expanded their retail footprint. And I think that was, you know, a big decision, but one to take. I think the second big branch of decision making and, you know, restructuring that she needed to do was to re refocus, you know, the brand on what it was doing best. So kill the project around play, recenter around those core markets, those core, those core products, and make sure that uh, they protect what's the most valuable for them, the brand. Do you think, uh, so I'm just putting all of this, like the sequencing of it in perspective, right? So you have an external investor's, external investor that comes from for an 80 million round at a step up, right? The the Sequoia round was at a $1.2 billion valuation. This one was at a $1.8 billion valuation two years uh, after. So this new investor is coming on. And then a few months later, the CEO founder, you know, leaves uh, to not... Uh, you know, make statements that we don't have like clear information about, but she, she steps down, uh, a new CEO comes in and then one third of your workforce is actually kind of laid out and the strategy changes meaningfully. I wonder how much of that was actually clearly communicated to these new investors. Like, was this a an investment that was made based on the turnaround story with the guarantees that there would be, you know, a management change and a strategy change in which perhaps they participated? Or was this kind of a an unexpected thing that happened and something they had not forecasted? Because it's two very different things. If they had not forecasted anything, <laughs> I mean, I would have liked to read that memo. <laughs> it would have been like pretty off. But if they knew about it and they actually helped, you know, set that up, it means that this is a late stage investors investor that is really not scared of taking structural risk while investing huge amounts of capital. 
to two very different kind of conclusions that you can join up on the fund that invested that last, last 80 million round. But I wondered, I wonder how much of that was actually communicated. Obviously, in 2021, and you're trying to raise a round, I would be surprised that existing VCs are telling to that new investor, look, we got all these challenges internally. You know, they must be focused on selling the story, selling the vision. So I'd be curious. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall hearing about these meetings. I would even speculate to say that 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 plan, you know, came from even before, you know, maybe at the time that Sequoia came in because that cow, she started her role as CCO 18 months prior, right? And it's usually what happens when you start to do some management changes. So basically that plan was maybe in motion for, for a while, even before that, that new round. It's crazy. And with these management changes, like uh, kind of orchestrated by VCs, but it happened all the time, you know, for people who don't know, even Bezos almost, or at least, you know, uh, some of the VCs considered, you know, changing business naturally would have been like a scale up type of CEOs obviously happened, uh, you know, quite famously with Steve Jobs. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, some found some VCs, um, in my perspective, sometimes, sometimes, uh, might be a little bit too involved uh, and quick uh, to make these decisions, which might not always be the best. In that case, we can't speculate. I think Cal is doing a, a tremendous job. So yeah. Far. And I think that third leg is going back to what we were saying before, Brand goes with trust and she needed to reestablish that trust for the company to be really successful and scaling again. So third thing she did is just to move away, you know, from that community led marketing because the community, you know, was less positive around the brand and she moved away from a more modern type of marketing model ambassadors so she actually worked her way through it and started doing some partnership with influencers and she even landed olivia rodrigo was in 2022 was actually the biggest star winning a lot of grammys so starting to establish that that trust uh with the consumers again plus in 2022 i feel like olivia rodrigo was just the person on the internet right so I think it's it's really beneficial that Jesse targeted so intentionally uh, who they were partnering with. Brings up a point, uh, kind of thinking again about this whole, uh, you know, they raised 260 million. Obviously, Ben, you made the point when you raise so much VCs, they do have expectations. They had to lay off like a third of their workforce. I'm just struggling from like a numbers, you know, quick math perspective to wrap my head around everything. So when you look at like a public comp, okay, let's take like L'Oreal. L'Oreal is making like 70 to 75% gross margin on their product. They're making 15% net margin profits, like 7 billion a year in cash flows generated by like these huge companies. Beauty, luxury beauty fashion brands are widely profitable they generate massive tons of cash. And when I think about Glossier, you know, you said, Pierre, that they laid off a third of their staff, which was like 80 people. So they had like 240 people, uh, you know, back at that point in time in like 2021, 2022. Some of these workers are, you know, building the brand or doing some, you know, highly paying jobs, but some of them are also on the manufacturing side and just the packaging side of things. So, Let's say we average 100K per year for like their employees, US. Uh, this would mean that it's like 25 million of salaries, basically. 2021, 
I mean, it's realistic to expect that they were doing about 200 millions of sales if they're forecasting 275 million, uh, 75 million in 2023. So, all right, so you have a business that's doing 200 million of sales. Peers in the industry are having 75% gross margin. So let's use that. means that they are basically making 150 million a year in gross profit. They have an employee cost base of 25 million. So they are making, you know, net of gross, uh, nets of COGS, nets of employee costs, 125 million a year. But still they're unprofitable and burning money which to me is very hard to wrap my head, my head around because first, their main go-to-market, from my understanding, at least in the first years of the business, was around content marketing, unpaid channel, community-driven sales, UGC. Lots of referrals as well. Lots like of referrals. 79% of the revenue was just referrals. So this was a business that was striving on unpaid sales. And then... On the R&D side, which I might understand, you know, for a company like Roblox or, you know, companies that are super tech reliant to have like huge R&D budget, I would understand, you know, hundreds of millions being kind of allocated towards that. But here we're talking about a company that's basically launching one, two products per year. Uh, and this is not like 3D rendering in real time, you know, involving AI in, in every facet of, of your product line. This is beauty products. I understand a very significant R&D is going into that. I wonder if you have 100 to 125 million of free cash flow to allocate to R&D, you know, how do you actually burn that for only like two product launches every year and still be like massively unprofitable? You don't even have a huge retail footprint. So I wonder, I would love to see those financials to understand like where the capital is actually flowing. Perhaps I'm, I'm wrong on my gross margin numbers. Basing myself on L'Oreal might not be the right peer. Let's say a 50% gross margin number, you still have 100, 100 million uh, of uh, pre-employee costs. I can't believe that they're spending more than 25, let's say a 50 million in employee salaries. This is still lots of cash to allocate to R&D, so I, 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 I'm struggling to see. Yeah, maybe what I would add to that is the fact that their community, one of the main things they, they were actually pointing out to the brand is that Glacier was not you know, innovating enough, so their R&D was not big enough and not launching new products fast enough. So basically, where was that money going? It's actually even building up to your point, but for me, maybe some of the potential you know, speculation that I could say around that is that, yes, they were expanding quite fast in terms of international expansion so building new stores permanent stores as well as pop-up stores in different markets across north america and europe so maybe that's one that was that's one place they would be spending a lot second maybe they were actually investing that capex to verticalize their production so maybe that's another every year i've spent but still even though for me it seems it seems that some of the money was going into you know random projects like play where it wasn't yeah. you know invested Appropriately. The thing with play too is like it was a very like if they're trying to spend create a brand every year or two, like you mentioned before, that's a whole lot of spend that you have to spend year over year over creating a new product and marketing it from scratch, right? Yeah. So I completely agree that's probably like a really good source of, of spend there. So interesting. Anyhow, uh maybe we're like drastically overestimating how much they were spending on ads. You know, we've talked about it, how much ads spend 
kind of went through the roof on, on social platforms. You know, interesting, like quick facts, but between 2010, 20, basically 2011 and 2021 on Facebook, ad cost increased by 5x. Uh, on Google, it basically doubled uh, over the same period. And Google and Facebook obviously are like, you know, where at least like the two biggest kind of channels in which people uh, were kind of doing their paid marketing with all the privacy centric changes that we're seeing now online and there i'm talking about like the cookie less future where it's really hard to target a user after they come on your website um paid marketing is becoming incredibly expensive targeting users is big it's becoming very very hard if the d2c space or you know paid centric digital marketing channel was getting tougher because of increased competition and increased demand for eyeball a whole new challenge is coming with privacy centric tech and regulations basically preventing the use of the most efficient tool that you had which is third-party cookies to really take place within within that that world so today you need to find creative ways uh, to reach people if you're a d2c brand uh, you need to partner with influencers. You need to create content. Um, and this is becoming expensive as well. This is becoming expensive as well. Uh, but the old playbook is not working anymore. And so we've seen that kind of whole divergence and whole movement towards like retail presence uh, coming back once again. So that's that's super interesting. Um, perhaps wrapping up on the history of, of, uh, of Glossier where we stand and then diving into a few kind of playbook points. Yeah, so perhaps wrapping up, just in order to see, you know, in terms of numbers, how that played out or, or how it's playing out so far because the story is not is not as it, at its end and Glossier is still going strong. So after a couple months, you know, of sluggish sales, you know, not scaling fast enough with Lihi now at the ship, the company is now growing, you know, fast again. So for the last half of 2022, they did 26% growth uh, in terms of revenues. So that was really good. They, uh, they also had their biggest quarter of sales in the last quarter of 2022, which was actually good. And they're actually striding towards profitability, which means that everything is going to the right path. So perhaps uh, maybe an IPO in the future for the company or, you know, another round of fundraising. Which is interesting because it kind of goes back to Joe's point of earlier where their last investors will be very useful if they end up doing an IPO. Yeah. And I mean, I agree. And all their investors, I mean, Every single one of them, they've have successful IPOs. So I, I think they do have the right set of people across the board to let them know, you know, when is a good time to actually go to market, uh, go to market, meaning go to the public market with like the NS1 feeling. But perhaps when this comes out and when they do it, we should have like a third leg, third leg of this of this pod diving into the number. I think we would have like a lot of fun doing it. All right. It's already been a long podcast. We've talked about the history of the brand. Basically, what we've said is... Glossier started alongside a big movement, the D2C movement. There were pioneers in that movement. There were pioneers into making a beauty brand, something that really resonated with users. They were actually one of the world's best company when it comes to co-creating your product with your user base. Uh, Glossier is a story of one founder first, someone who had mastered uh, the art of uh, storytelling in many different ways, someone who learned extremely fast and who scaled the business uh, very fast, who built a brand, who built a community. Uh, and then it's the story of a business who faced challenges and that made swift action to react to them. 
and the jury's still out to see how well this is going to go in the future. But decisions are being made, actions are being taken, and early results at least are promising. This is a great story for people trying to understand the history of direct-to-consumer, the challenges that this industry is facing, but also to see the limitations of your early playbook when it comes to building a huge, huge, huge business and huge brand and the need for like continuous adaptability. So now let's dive into a few kind of key teams. I'm curious to hear, guys, you know, what your thoughts are on the things that set this company apart. Uh, let's try to keep this really at the strategic level more than at the history level. Uh, and let's all share, you know, some of the thoughts we've had about this business, their strategy and, and so forth. So perhaps I can start uh, with one of my thoughts and then would love to kind of hear yours. The first thing when it comes to launching a business is really why Cubinator's uh, motto. Uh, I think it's so simple, but it's so true, which is like build something people want. There's nothing truer than that when it comes to creating a business. And you know what? The last two, three years, this has been the most forgotten thing ever. You've had tons of money allocated towards businesses built on long-term visions that were not answering to a real demand uh, or to a real kind of user need. But this thing built something people want was actually the core thing that Glossy did in the early days. They created a content and from what their users were actually saying, they actually started to build a product. YC is actually is saying, you know, a founder, a founding team should be doing two things, talking to users and building product. Talking to users is what Emily did for a few years before starting to build a product. No one knew more than her what this specific crowd wanted. And so this specific part of building something people want starts with user interaction and user communication. And when it comes to playbook, strategy, Glossier might still to this day be the greatest example of letting your potential customers tell you what you should be building. So to me, that's a like textbook example of building something people want from listening um, to them. So this was, you know, from, from a strategy standpoint, one of my biggest learning kind of diving into this entire glossy story. The second main branch that I think is really important to point out is the fact that Glossier story highlights how much brand is important. And Joe says, said it earlier, brand is the most sensible and the most precious mode of all, and it comes with trust. A brand like Nike, people love it, and people spend you know high premiums to buy that those products, but it's because they trust the brand, they trust its quality, and they trust that actually it's gonna go, it's gonna come as they see it on you know the internet and as they see it in, in the store. Hundred percent. And I, I would even go on to expand on brand, saying that brands can be saved. Uh, I think there's this vision that people have that. Once there's a, a stain on your brand, the brand is kind of doomed. And But I can think, you know, let's take, it, it's an old example, but I think it's a great example, like uh, the example of McDonald's uh, with the supersize me kind of video. They were under fire when this like uh, documentary came out. What did they do? They answered with transparency. They did a whole campaign around how many calories were in every one of their meal. They basically made every, they, they turned their card, made everything public. They 
invested so much energy and capital into basically answering to that crisis, I think to this day, we can very safely say that McDonald's successfully came out of this crisis uh, extremely well. And there's there's a few examples of brands that were, you know, under massive fire that reacted the right way, that properly communicated throughout the crisis and that actually came out on the other side, you know, stronger. And so when it comes to brand, it's something you need to protect. But when it's under attack, you can defend it and you can save it. doesn't mean that, you know, it's been stained, that it will remain like that forever. You can also change as a brand. Which I think is a really cool example that you picked McDonald's because not only did they do that, but they also launched new products that were healthier options. Like they had a few wraps and stuff like that that had like actual like more vegetables and stuff in it um, that were great. And it's kind of think that what we're seeing with Glossier now is that since Leahy came in, she started launching new products again, which then resulted. Obviously, this is very early, but we're starting to see positive results. Exactly. That's such a great point. People can attack you as a brand, but if your answer is, you're right, I'm listening to you and I'm changing, this is a chance to you know reinforce the the brand appeal that you have. Uh, so Ben, absolutely, most uh, sensible thing. And I think this is especially true for, for those younger generations of customers who are actually buying from a brand because they, they identify themselves with those values. And I think you have no choice as a brand to respond whenever there's a crisis of learning in your way you need to respond think really you know carefully about what you're going to say and how you're going to respond but no matter what there's a way to do it and it is important so keeping your brand's value is one of the most important thing as a consumer brand yeah and just wanted to quickly touch upon also the fact of like listening to your customers because like what you just said what we learn always in business is start with the niche and then grow bigger right where if you go in a niche and you don't actually listen to what the people actually want you're not going to end up going anywhere. So that's where I think that Glossy maybe did like a quick little mistake with play. But I think that now they're going to be uh, recovering over over that, which is going to be interesting. Once again, to me, play, uh, I mean, conceptually, I can really understand when yeah. they do it. Like it didn't work out. But I think launching multiple brands to your audience can actually work. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's interesting. Drew is still out for this one. Obviously, this is, doesn't, doesn't seem to be part of like Cal's strategy. Yeah. Uh, but I agree. And if it would have worked, I think it would have been like Glossy all the way to the top. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, Okay, moving on to the next one. Uh, next point I wanted to bring up uh, is content-driven marketing. Uh, so... There's obviously a sea of content in the world today. There was not as much content back in 2010, uh, but now everyone is kind of shipping content and it's part of everyone's strategy. And rightfully so. Uh, When it comes to growing a user base, a faithful user base, there's nothing like content marketing. And this is kind of a a thing I want to share with prospective entrepreneurs in the consumer and brand building space. When I was a VC and we were looking at direct-to-consumer brands and just consumer-facing brands, people are going to be spending on paid. Uh, Some products worked well with paid. By paid, I mean ads, paid channel. Uh, But paid is expensive. It costs something. And, you know, paid, uh, the problem with that is that it becomes more expensive as you scale. Because the first uh, more interested customers, you're going to tap into them with your first kind of... So there's... uh, 
marginally decreasing returns on your ad spend uh, when you're doing paid marketing, meaning you're going to be spending 20 bucks for your first user. Your second user is going to cost you 20, 20, uh, 22 bucks, and then it's going to grow like that. Um, so uh, uh, decreasing marginal return when it comes to like ad spend. Uh, and there's also a cap on the ad spend you can, you, you can, you can actually ship. Uh, so that's negative. Um, when it comes to influencer marketing, I mean, this is a category of paid. It's just not direct ad. It's with influencers. It's expensive. Uh, it costs something, right? So that's something uh, that brand needs to be aware of. But when it comes to content, it takes time for people to see your content and learn about your content. But if you do it really well and you build it over time, there's a way for you to build a level of connection with your audience that becomes much more personal, much more scalable. Uh, when you think about your five favorite podcasts or your five favorite blogs, those are people that you trust. You know their voice, you know their taste, you know their opinions, uh, you care about their perspective. It's, it's an intimate relationship uh, that really creates a difference in the numbers that we were seeing. So when we looked at D2C brands uh, and, you know, we were investors in Dollar Shave Club, you know, back in the days, back some very successful D2C companies like Freshly, Bonadot Box. Brands who mastered content marketing, who nurtured it for a very long time, had much better unit economics than all the other ones. They had this level of connection through faithfulness, low churn as well. When you acquire a user because of paid, you paid for that user but this user, unless your product is stunning, is not going to come back because they might not identify as strongly to you as if they were actually listening to your content and, and different touch points to, to, to hear about your kind of perspective. So content marketing, very important, something that you really kind of need to put forward, especially as a brand. Even if there's a sea of content today, you can't bypass it. This is the most scalable thing you can do. You just need to invest time, resources and make great content. And that's the thing. I think it's it come, goes down to becoming consistent, but also having the time to put into making that. Because once again, to bring it back to Glacier, is that what's nice is that they started out of Into the Gloss, which was a slow, like it was, it took some time to grow, right? But what was nice is that there wasn't a company attached with a certain burn rate for that company. So such a good point such yeah. a good point they didn't have the pressure of having that exactly. kind of coming up so they could focus on build PL. i think that's an amazing point like no great insight i agree and then last point ben do you want to go up yeah i think the last big point of the strategy and what you know just pops out of of, of that story of, about glossier is the fact that maybe you start as d2c but you need to adapt yourself as the market grows right if you know that you've built a big brand and you know that presence is good but you're not achieving those results and generating that those revenues that goes accordingly that's because distribution is not mastered and you need to be flexible in your model to be able to expand into new partnerships and new areas and this is one of the examples that Glossiers did well but maybe a bit too late with Sephora and going to that omni-channel strategy so I think it's really important to try that retail strategy maybe by pop-up stores at first in order to keep that spend down but then really expanding and starting to build those relationship in person with your customers. That's good for feedback. That's good for sales. And as well, that's good to leverage partnerships and get, you know, people marketing your brand and not even yourself. Right? Evolve as you grow. I agree. 
All right, guys, this was incredibly fun. I really loved, I learned a lot from uh, learning about their own story as a company. And also I thought you brought you know, some amazing perspective to that. Uh, this was our first one, uh, actually insider take, but it was actually the fourth time we were doing it. So we were kind of <laughs> improving throughout the process. Uh, had tons of fun. I really liked it. I'm already excited for the next one. Uh, so thanks guys uh, for coming.